Every year, for as long as our grown kids can remember, and long before that, we've managed to make the car trek from our adopted hometown of Virginia Beach, south to the outer banks of North Carolina, one of the most beautiful long stretches of beach and dunes to be found anywhere in the U.S., thanks mainly to the fact that much of it is protected federally as Cape Hatteras National Seashore. Some of the residents down there are descended from the original English settlers, or pirates for all we know, and still speak with a bit of Elizabethan twang. You might hear at the local bait shop that hoi toid, or high tide, is due in so many hours, meaning it's a good time to get your line in the water because the surf fishing is usually best on the incoming or rising tide prior to its high mark. For those of you East Coasters that have been seeing OBX decals on the backs of cars and Jeeps these past years and didn't know, OBX means Outer Banks. We like to go down there in October, after the tourists have left and parked the four-wheel facing the ocean, pull out our chairs and surf rods, and enjoy some real relaxed time. The water's still warm in October, and sometimes if you get there early enough, you can look north and south along miles of wide beach and dunes and not see a single soul. It's God's country for beach people. If you saw the movie Nights in Rodanth, that's one of the little villages that pops up every few miles as you get further south between the dunes along the two-lane coast highway that leads you to the ferry station at Hatteras and then by car ferry to the island of Ocracoke. That beach house where they filmed the movie really was right there on the beach, but they moved it back some distance after the movie, and now it's a B&B. How it survived past storms, I have no idea. It was at the island of Ocracoke in November of 1718 that the legendary pirate Blackbeard met his fate at the hands of Lieutenant Maynard and his crew, who had been sent by Virginia's governor Spotswood to bring back Blackbeard's head, along with any of his pirate crew he could find. Why a Virginia governor, you ask? Because North Carolina's governor, Charles Eden, who owned a plantation tract of land in Bathtown at the confluence of Bath Creek and the Pamlico River, next door to the property owned by his friend, the appointed secretary of the colony and customs official, Tobias Knight, were rumored to be solidly in Blackbeard's pocket and quite happy with allowing him to use North Carolina as his home base from which he could launch pirating ventures into neighboring Virginia and South Carolina when he wasn't plying the waters of the Caribbean for booty. All the history books tell us his name was Edward Thatch, or Teach, and that he was probably born in Bristol, England, or definitely born there, depending on which source you're reading. Ask anyone from around these parts, and we'll tell you that and more. There's enough stories about Blackbeard to keep you entertained for hours, but only a few have a grain of truth. In fact, it's very possible that the joke has been on us all these years, and if Blackbeard had a legacy... It was that, upon becoming a pirate, he protected his family's name all these centuries with a well-spun lie, and is at the last laugh, albeit a headless one, on us. How do I know this? We'll get to that in a minute. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one titled, Blackbeard, the Man and the Myth. And we're going to take a look at the myth that has surrounded one of history's most famous pirates, Blackbeard and give you the facts as we know them, plus some very interesting what-ifs and legends. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate your comments at our busy Facebook site at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. We hope you'll continue to enjoy our audio shows at 1001storiespodcast.com. 
And we'll keep shows coming to all the free subscription podcast sites like iTunes, podbay.fm, and stitcher.com. You can also Twitter us at 1001podcast. Especially if you have a pirate ancestor in your family tree, or if you've ever drunk from a silver-plated skull with the words, Death to Spotswood inside. The storyline continues to live on that Blackbeard, a.k.a. Edward Thatch, or Teach, depending on which name you prefer, was from Bristol, England, had 14 wives, one of whom was named Mary Ormond, that the men he killed were many, that he left buried treasure from Nova Scotia to Texas, he had homes or hideouts all up and down the East Coast, and that most of his band of buccaneers were caught and hung, and somehow he spawned gift shops, taverns, and hotels from Padre Island, Texas to Bangor, Maine, while he was busy between burying treasure in all those locations. It's a funny thing about history. You probably never heard a peep about the little wooden shack on Discord Lane in Marcus Hook, Delaware, where he would visit his Swedish girlfriend, Margaret, or the little store at 77 High Street in Philadelphia, where he and some of his crew would pick up supplies and pass time with the Coates family. Those were real or that the Quakers in Philadelphia paid well for stolen goods. And then there are dozens of tales in the coastal Carolinas that have been passed down through generations, like the tale of Susanna White, rumored to be Blackbeard's sister, a tale which probably carries at least a grain of truth, which we'll get to post-haste. A few years ago, our family was staying over at our favorite getaway spot at Silver Lake Harbor on the little island of Ocracoke way down there at the bottom end of the long strip of sand and seagrass-covered dunes they call the Outer Banks of North Carolina, when I noticed a large hardback book had been added to the innkeeper's collection on our coffee table. It was titled The Last Days of Blackbeard the Pirate, printed by Looking Glass Productions out of Raleigh, North Carolina, and authored by Kevin Duffus. With a yo-ho-ho and a bottle of Merlot, I picked it up and read the first few paragraphs of the prologue titled Sister Susie, which described the author's search for a headstone in a dark cypress woods along the banks of the Tar River, an even darker Carolina Coast River, a search for the headstone of Susanna White, and I was immediately hooked. Hooked first because the author's description of the time and place and circumstance was so well written, and secondly because he was searching for proof that Blackbeard was born and raised as a beard, spelled B-E-A-R-D, in the Carolinas, that he well knew the waters between Charleston, South Carolina, and Bathtown, North Carolina, and their tricky bars and shoals, most likely from his younger days, and frequented them often, and that at least one Beard property, that of Captain James Beard, bordered that of the king's appointed tax collector Tobias Knight, and that of Governor Eden's Bath Creek plantation at the Pimlico River, that his original crew, the men he could trust in the end, was comprised mostly of men from Bathtown. And from here the story grows, as author Kevin Duffus describes his efforts and those of a team of volunteer researchers to peel back the shrouds of history one layer at a time and separate fact from fiction. It wasn't to be an easy search. Courthouses containing documents have burned down. Absolute proof that Captain Beard was Blackbeard's father has never been found, but enough circumstantial evidence has been turned up to allow us to consider the possibility that Blackbeard tried to cover his real identity, perhaps to protect his family name, which was well known in merchant circles in Charleston and Bathtown. Like his friend, 
pirate Black Sam Bellamy. Edward Beard may have been the black sheep of the Beard family, and he had the long black beard to prove it, a beard that, according to one early author, he would use to create an image of terror by lighting gunpowder fuses tied to his beard below his tricorn hat, the smoke from which would surround his head with a devilish wreath, inspiring fear in anyone whose ship he was boarding. History has been fairly unswerving in telling us that Blackbeard's real name was Edward Thatch, or Teach, and that he came from Bristol, England, which made Mr. Duffus's story all the more compelling. Here's how most encyclopedias read as you start the bio. Edward Teach, also Edward Thatch, circa 1680 to November 1718, better known as Blackbeard, was a notorious English pirate who operated around the West Indies and the eastern coast of the American colonies. Although little is known about his early life, he was probably born in Bristol, England. Much of what we do know about Blackbeard comes from Captain Charles Johnson's book, A General History of Pirates, written in 1724 and containing sensational stories of the lives of most famous pirates of the time, including salacious stories telling of the debauchery, villainy, and general mayhem that was taking place on the high seas with the help of Captain William Kidd, Calico Jack Rackham, Anne Bonney, Black Sam Bellamy, Bartholomew Roberts, and others. Like Blackbeard, Johnson's true identity has never really been decided, but many believe he may have been a pirate himself, because he was well familiarized with all the characters. Some say he was really Daniel Defoe, the author of Robinson Crusoe. He certainly had access to information about many of them. Where did he come across it, and how much of it was truth? Much of what has been written since relies upon this one writer's chapter on Teach, and very little on actual research. What we do know is this. He was really only active as a pirate for a period of about two years between 1716 and 1718. He was very likely involved in some honest treasure hunting along the coast of Florida with Sam Bellamy and others in 1716, where Spanish wrecks were providing those brave enough to negotiate an anchor in and dive the wreck-filled reefs were finding treasure, then heading for Nassau to cash it in and live high on the riches. In New Providence, he met and joined Captain Benjamin Hornigold, an active pirate. In September of 1716, King George let it be known that Hornigold and Teach were considered pirates, wanted criminals, and enemies of the state. Hornigold placed Blackbeard in command of a sloop he had captured, and the two continued with numerous acts of piracy. Their numbers were boosted by the addition to their fleet of two more ships, one of which was commanded by Steed Bonnet. But toward the end of 1717, Hornigold retired from piracy, receiving leniency from King George, taking two vessels with him. Bellamy had decided to take a captured ship, the 300-ton Wyda, spelled W-H-Y-D-A-H, to his home in Massachusetts to show it off, and was caught in a storm off Cape Cod and lost to sea. There's a great book out there written by the guys who finally found that Wyda shipwreck. Very good book. Look it up. W-H-Y-D-A-H. Pirates came in all shapes, sizes, and types. Some worked for a country, example England, and were paid a bounty for what they could return to that country's treasure. Others were independent. All were committing a criminal activity and stealing other people's possessions, and often killing those who resisted. At the height of piracy, in the decades before 1720, any person, merchant, or otherwise carried a real fear of pirates. Those who lived on the east coast of the U.S. when the I-95 snipers were killing innocent travelers 
can well remember the fear that those killings were generating, much the same in pirate days. For that reason, most pirates were hated and feared by many and lived short lives, with many facing the gallows. In October of 1717, Blackbeard was in the Caribbean, working out of the newly established pirate capital of New Providence in the Bahamas. With its history of colonialism, trade, and piracy, the West Indies was the setting for many 17th and 18th century maritime incidents. The privateer-turned-pirate Henry Jennings and his followers decided, early in the 18th century, to use the then-uninhabited island of New Providence as a base for their operations. It was within easy reach of the Florida Strait and its busy shipping lanes, which were filled with European vessels crossing the Atlantic. New Providence's harbor could easily accommodate hundreds of ships and was too shallow for the Royal Navy's larger vessels to navigate. The island then wasn't the popular tourist destination it later became. The author George Woodbury described it as No city of homes. It was a place of temporary sojourn and refreshment for a literally floating population. Continuing, the only permanent residents were the piratical camp followers, the traders, and the hangers-on. All others were transit. Law and order were unheard of in New Providence. Pirates found a welcome respite. It was during a cruise with Hornigold that the earliest known report of Teach was made, in which he's recorded as a pirate in his own right, in command of a large crew. In a report made by Captain Matthew Munt on anti-piracy patrol for North Carolina, Thatch was described as operating a sloop of six guns and about 70 men. In September, Teach and Hornigold encountered Steed Bonnet, a landowner and military officer from a wealthy family who had turned to piracy earlier that year. Bonnet's crew of about 70 were reportedly dissatisfied with his command, so with Bonnet's permission, Teach took control of three ships, with Teach on Revenge, which was Teach's old sloop, and Hornigold's Ranger. By October, another vessel had been captured and added to the small fleet. The sloops Robert of Philadelphia and Good Intent of Dublin were stopped on the 22nd of October, 1717, and their cargo holds emptied. As a former British privateer, Hornigold attacked only his old enemies, but for his crew, the sight of British vessels filled with valuable cargo passing by unharmed became too much, and at some point toward the end of 1717, he was demoted. Whether Teach had any involvement in this decision is unknown, but Hornigold quickly retired from piracy. He took Ranger and one of the sloops, leaving Teach with revenge and the remaining sloop. Coincidentally, the Ranger may well have been one of the ships that finally cornered Blackbeard in late 1718. The two never met again, and with many other occupants of New Providence, Hornigold accepted the King's pardon from Woods Rogers in June the following year. On the 28th of November, Teach's two ships attacked a French merchant vessel off the coast of St. Vincent. They each fired a broadside across its bulwarks, killing several of its crew and forcing its captain to surrender. The ship was La Concorde of St. Malo, a large French guineaman carrying a cargo of slaves. Teach and his crew sailed the vessel along the St. Vincent and the Grenadines to Bequia, where they disembarked her crew and cargo and converted the ship for their own use. The crew of La Concorde were given the smaller of Teach's two sloops, which they renamed Mauvais Recontre, bad meeting, and sailed for Martinique. Teach may have recruited some of their slaves, but the remainder were left on the island and were later recaptured by the returning crew of Mauvais Recontre. 
Teach immediately renamed La Concorde as Queen Anne's Revenge and equipped her with 40 guns. In late November, near St. Vincent, he attacked the Great Allen. After a lengthy engagement, he forced the large and well-armed merchant ship to surrender. He ordered her to move closer to the shore, disembarked her crew, and emptied her cargo holds, and then burned and sank the vessel. The incident was chronicled in the Boston Newsletter, which called Teach the commander of a French ship of 32 guns, a brigantine of 10 guns, and a sloop of 12 guns. When or where Teach collected the 10-gun brigantine is unknown, but by that time he may have been in command of at least 150 men split between three vessels. On the 5th of December, 1717, Teach stopped the merchant sloop Margaret off the coast of Crab Island near Anguilla. Her captain, Henry Bostock, and crew remained Teach's prisoners for about eight hours and were forced to watch as their sloop was ransacked. Bostock, who had been held aboard Queen Anne's Revenge, was returned unharmed to Margaret and was allowed to leave with his crew. He returned to his base of operations on St. Christopher Island and reported the matter to Governor Walter Hamilton, who requested that he sign an affidavit about the encounter. Bostock's deposition details Teach's command of two vessels, a sloop and a large French Guineaman, Dutch-built, with 36 cannon and a crew of 300 men. The captain believed that the largest ship carried valuable gold dust, silver plate, and a very fine cup supposedly taken from the commander of the Great Allen. Teach's crew had apparently informed Bostock that they had destroyed several other vessels and that they intended to sail to Hispaniola and lie in wait for an expected Spanish armada, supposedly laden with money to pay the garrisons. Bostock also claimed that Teach had questioned him about the movements of local ships, but also that he had seemed unsurprised when Bostock told him of an expected royal pardon from London for all pirates. Bostock's deposition describes Teach as a tall, spare man with a very black beard, which he wore very long. It is the first recorded account of Teach's appearance and is the source of his cognomen, Blackbeard. Later descriptions mention that his thick black beard was braided into pigtails, sometimes tied in small colored ribbons. The author Johnson described him as such a figure that imagination cannot form an idea of a fury from hell to look more frightful. Whether Johnson's description was entirely truthful or embellished is unclear, but it seems likely that Teach understood the value of appearances. Better to strike fear into the heart of one's enemies than rely on bluster alone. Teach was tall with broad shoulders. He wore knee-length boots and dark clothing topped with a wide hat and sometimes a long coat of brightly colored silk or velvet. Johnson also described Teach in times of battle as wearing a sling over his shoulders with three brace of pistols hanging in holsters like bandoliers and stuck lighted matches under his hat. The latter apparently to emphasize the fearsome appearance he wished to present to his enemies. Despite his ferocious reputation though, there are no verified accounts of his ever having murdered or harmed those he held captive. Teach may have used other aliases. On the 30th of November, the Montserrat merchant encountered two ships and a sloop commanded by a Captain Kentish and Captain Edwards, the latter a known alias of Steed Bonnet. Between November of 1717 and March of 1718, Blackbeard plied the waters of the Gulf of Mexico, seeking gold-laden Spanish ships to plunder. During this time, he heard that six of Sam Bellamy's men had been caught and hung. 
The last way any pirate wanted to die was kicking and flailing at the end of a rope, doing the dance of death that entertained masses of onlookers in Boston, Charleston, London, and to a lesser degree, Williamsburg, Virginia, where many of Blackbeard's men would one day be facing the rope, knowing that after their death, their bodies would be left to rot in the gibbets on Williamsburg's Capital Landing Road. By late 1717, Blackbeard, now with a flotilla that included ships with over 700 pirates, heard the news that King George was offering clemency to all pirates who promised to quit their crimes and turn themselves in by September 5th of 1718. The one caveat being that they had to end all acts of piracy by the 5th of January, 1718. But Blackbeard kept on. His force had grown too large and maybe he knew he had powerful friends back in Bathtown from whom he could buy a king's pardon. In June of 1718, he formed an alliance of pirates and blockaded the port of Charleston, South Carolina. For four days, his flotilla of pirate ships intercepted and plundered as many as nine merchant vessels, as well as taking some townies hostage. He could have taken the town, but he sent word in asking for medical supplies, and after dithering for a few days while ships approaching the port were being ransacked, the town finally gave in and sent the supplies, no doubt containing the treatment for syphilis, which Blackbeard, according to many accounts, was suffering from, as well as other medical supplies. When the wreck of the Queen Anne's Revenge was finally found and brought up, among thousands of artifacts found was a syringe used to administer the chemicals needed to treat syphilis, which was not an easy problem to deal with. Having lost about a third of his pirate contingent in the past few months as parts of his band, reacting to the king's offer of pardon, deserted, Blackbeard was now intent on separating himself and his handful of loyal followers from the multi-ship flotilla that had grown around him. Two days after leaving Charleston, on June 10, 1718, Blackbeard ran the Queen Anne's Revenge aground on a sandbar at Topsail Inlet, now called Buford Inlet. He and about 25 of his most trusted, many of which included his close friends from Bathtown, North Carolina, managed to remove their plunder from the ship and transfer it to the adventure as they made their way ashore, apart from the crew of 100 or so that scattered into the woods and back to lives they had before they had turned pirate. It was over for most of them. The other ships in the flotilla, after a futile attempt to right the ship and believing Blackbeard was done, went their own way. The pirate armada had disbanded. Blackbeard surrendered to Governor Eden, who through Tobias Knight would fudge the paperwork to make it look like he had not committed piracy after January 5th, but he had to wait for the papers to come through. Some of the history books, including that of author Robert Earl Lee, note that Blackbeard tried to settle down in Bathtown. After receiving this pardon, a pardon which would take months to cross the Atlantic and return as an official signature from the king, they say he married a local planter's daughter named Mary Ormond, who would only marry him if he promised to give up his life as a pirate. But there is no documentation available to prove that, and Blackbeard's stay in Bathtown was barely long enough to consummate a marriage. Within weeks, Blackbeard and his much-trimmed crew were plying the high seas aboard the adventure. By November of 1718, Blackbeard and about 19 of his men Thirteen whites and six blacks were anchored at Ocracoke, within wading distance of their favorite waterhole. But there was a chill in the air. Camping on the beach, 
swilling rum and Madeira wine taken from a ship they had plundered at Cape Charles, and entertaining visits from other pirates and their crews, listening to the news that they brought. It was much too late to be hanging around the Carolinas when they should be in the Caribbean. The men were restless. Three crew members, including Blackbeard's chief mate Israel Hands, had been accused of betrayal and were left at Bathtown. Legend has it that Blackbeard, upon learning that Hans was talking behind Blackbeard's back, invited Hans into his cabin for a drink, then, holding his pistol below the table at which they were sitting, shot Hans, striking him in the knee. It was a warning to the rest of the crew, and the end of the line for Hans. Hans, according to some, escaped being hung later in Williamsburg with the others of Blackbeard's captured crew, and died a homeless beggar in London years later. Camped on Ocracoke Island at Springer's Point, Blackbeard had received a note from Tobias Knight to make way with all haste back to Bathtown, which seemed ridiculous to Blackbeard as he had just left there. That note was found in Blackbeard's pocket after his death, offering proof that Knight and Blackbeard were at the very least involved in matters that couldn't be stated in writing. Fellow privateer Charles Vane had arrived, and the crews partied late into the night for a week before Vane left offering a warning that Blackbeard needed to leave, and fast. Meanwhile, Virginia's governor Spotswood had received news that Blackbeard was lingering at Ocracoke and had left some of his men at Bathtown, sending the rest toward Ocracoke. On November 17, 1718, he sent a land force of 200 men led by Ellis Brand, captain of the HMS Lime, which was stationed in the Linhaven Bay just inside the entrance to the bay at Cape Henry in what is now Virginia Beach to Bathtown, the capital of the Carolina colony. Two lightly armed sloops under the command of Lieutenant Robert Maynard, Maynard on the Jane and Captain Hyde on the Ranger, were ordered to proceed to Ocracoke, and the two ships passed through the outer banks through Roanoke Inlet on Thursday the 20th of November. Neither had cannon aboard, but the crew was well trained in cutlass and small arms weapons. At 9 a.m. on the morning of November 22nd, 1718, Maynard, who had spotted Blackbeard's adventure anchored in the one-way channel known today as Teach's Hole the day before, ordered the crew of his two ships to row the mile and a half that separated them from the tip of Ocracoke Island and Blackbeard's ship Adventure. Ahead, they swung the lead and plumbed the depths to avoid the dangerous shoals, moving uphill against the tide. At the bottom of ship's channel, they made a hard turn to port, picked up the tide in their favor, and the hunt was on. Their flags were hidden. Most of the crew was below decks in an effort to make them look like passing merchant ships. As the ships approached, Blackbeard called out, Avast there, strangers! We're for King George! Bring out your boat and come aboard so we can see who you are! And so are we! Maynard most likely replied as they ran up the Royal Naval Ensign. Aboard the adventure, Blackbeard immediately ordered the anchor line freed and the jib hoisted. Boatswain Garrett Gibbons began to haul on the jib's halyard as the crew scrambled foreguns, cutlasses, and grappling irons. The starboard cannons were frantically loaded with swan shot, consisting of pieces of old iron, nails, and pieces of lead. Blackbeard sent his longtime personal aide, some say slave, known as Black Caesar, down to the storage room with orders to light the gunpowder if they were captured. Then he leapt to the rail and shouted, Damn you for villains! Who are you? And whence come you? Leave us alone, and we shall not meddle with you. 
Maynard replied, It is you we want, and we will have you dead or alive, else it will cost our life. Blackbeard responded, Damnation to you, you cowardly puppies. We'll give no quarter, nor take none. Mr. Morton, prepare your guns and fire when ready. Give them a taste of our hospitality. In the crucial minutes that followed, both the Jane and the Ranger ran aground while Blackbeard attempted to get past them to escape to the channel. The Ranger broke free and bravely attempted to cut off Blackbeard's adventure, but a deadly cannonade fired from the adventure killed Midshipman Hyde and all his officers on deck, leaving no one in command. Maynard's men aboard the Jane then focused their fire on the adventure's jib, causing it to crash to the deck, and during this attack the adventure ran aground. The Jane pulled alongside, and when they tried to board, a hail of fire from the adventure's deck guns killed six of the Jane's men outright and wounded twenty of them. Blackbeard then ordered his men to board the deck of the Jane, thinking that they had the advantage, but Maynard's men, many of whom had been concealed below decks, now came pouring out, and amidst the smoke of gunpowder and the bloody deck, the battle was on. Maynard and Blackbeard then found each other, and this was the eyewitness account provided to the Boston Newsletter. Maynard making a thrust, the point of his sword went against Teach's cartridge box and bended it to the hilt. Teach broke the guard of it and wounded Maynard's fingers but did not disable him, whereupon Maynard jumped back, threw away his sword, and fired his pistol, wounding Teach. Abraham DeMelt struck in between them with his sword and cut Teach's face pretty much. In the interim, both companies engaged in Maynard's sloop, one of Maynard's men, being a Highlander, engaged Teach with his broadsword, who gave Teach a cut on the neck. Teach saying, Well done, lad. The Highlander replied, If it ne'er be done, I'll do it better. With that he gave him a second stroke, which cut off his head, laying it flat on his shoulder. Within six minutes, thirteen pirates lay dead. Nine of Maynard's men had been killed, and two more from the ranger, all by cannon fire, none from the sword. Legend has it that Blackbeard's headless body was tossed overboard and that it swam around the ship before sinking. But that was highly unlikely because Maynard's ships weren't leaving any time soon and his men would have taken every effort to bury all the bodies rather than having them floating in the channel for two weeks. Blackbeard's bones no doubt rest below the sand in Ocracoke. Meanwhile, Captain Ellis Brand had arrived in Bathtown and upon hearing the news that Blackbeard had been killed, began receiving reports that Tobias Knight and others in the town had been up to no good, all the way up to their necks. Brandon rounded up what remained of Blackbeard's crew and sent the information regarding Tobias Knight's potential involvement ahead in his reports. Knight was sick, and his days would end before he ever reached a courtroom. After two weeks looking for whatever Blackbeard had left behind, which turned out to be very little, Maynard set sail for Kickatan Inlet known today as Hampton, Virginia, where they arrived, nine prisoners in tow, on September 30th. Here, Maynard displayed the severed head of Blackbeard to the crowds who had gathered at the dock. Researchers were discovered that 75% of the names of those who comprised Blackbeard's crew were present on the Bath County deeds. On December 10th, Steed Bonnet was delivered screaming to the gallows in Charleston, where he was hung and his body was buried above the high tide mark in Charleston Marsh. A few days later, a ship arrived in Kickatan, Virginia, carrying Blackbeard's official pardon from King George. This time, the wording, thanks to the efforts of Knight and Governor Eden, no doubt, 
had been changed, removing the January 5, 1718 deadline for acts of piracy and resetting the date to 1719, a change in wording that would have given Blackbeard full clemency. On January 8, 1719, Captain Maynard sailed up the James River and delivered Blackbeard's head and 13 of his crew to Virginia's capital city, Williamsburg, the prisoners going to the jail and the head going to the governor's palace. Rumor has long circulated in Williamsburg that the money taken from these men served as an early donation to the young college of William and Mary. Of the 15 men arrested and brought to Williamsburg for trial, nine were pardoned or acquitted, and six were hung. The hangings took place at the mouth of the Hampton River. Williamsburg's connection with pirates dates to 1693. Account books of the College of William and Mary show 300 pounds received from three buccaneers named Edward Davis, Lionel Delawafer, and Andrew Hinson, who thus obtained their release from the Jamestown Jail. Blackbeard quartermaster William Howard, while incarcerated in Williamsburg, was defended in court by the town's first mayor, John Holloway, characterized by Spotswood as a constant patron and advocate of pirates. Nine of Blackbeard's crew survived to be captured and, with six others seized in Bath, were brought to Virginia's colonial capital for trial, probably held in the general courtroom on the first floor of the capital. March 1719 saw six pirates, as previously mentioned, meet their end on the gallows along Williamsburg's present Capitol Landing Road. And now the final question. Where is the treasure buried? Let's start with Mulberry Island on the James River, now the property of the Army and part of Fort Eustace in Newport News, Virginia. In the years Blackbeard flourished between 1716 and 1718, he reportedly was busy burying many of his seized treasures along Virginia waterways for later retrieval. In fact, one of his crewmen was quoted in a book, Downing's Indian Wars, published in England in 1737, as identifying one treasure site as on the James River near Mulberry Island. This spot today would be near Fort Eustace Airstrip. The information was dictated by a Portuguese pirate, Antonio Silvestro, who had formerly sailed with Blackbeard and who passed the information on to a fellow crewman, John Plantain, when they met on the island of Madagascar off the coast of Africa. He informed me, wrote Plantain, that if it should be my lot ever to go to an island called Mulberry Island, that there the pirates had buried considerable sums of money in great chests, well clamped with iron plates. Plantain identified the site as the upper end of a small sandy covet, where it is convenient to land. Fronting the landing place are five trees among which he, De Silvestro, said the money was hid. The account was reprinted in 1954 in the Fort Eustis newspaper The Sentinel and apparently set off a wave of searchers for buried treasure. However, the shoreline of Mulberry Island has eroded over the years and it was greatly disturbed by Confederates when they built Fort Crawford there in 1862. Thus, so far as this chronicler has been able to learn, nobody has dug up the booty. Nobody, at least, that we've heard of. Then there's Teach's Oak in the town of Oriental, North Carolina, on the Noose River. Legend has it that Greens and Smith Creeks near Oriental were sometimes haunts for the infamous Edward Teach, better known as the Pirate Blackbeard. From Teach's Cove, at the intersection of the two creeks, according to legend, Blackbeard would hide behind a huge oak and watch for potential targets sailing down the noose. Also, according to legend, 
Blackbeard left a captured princess near Oriental and buried the booty from her ship under the oak, never to return. Blackbeard was beheaded in 1718, as we all know, and Teach's Oak fell during a storm in 1958. To date, no one has found the treasure. During the 17th and 18th centuries in England and America, the bodies of executed pirates were often later hanged in chains near harbor entrances and left for years as a warning to would-be pirates. It is recorded that Spotswood required this action to be taken, with four profligate wretches hanged by twos at Tyndall's Point on the York and at Urbana on the Rappahannock. Blackbeard's skull hung for many years from a pole at the confluence of the Hampton and James Rivers. The site is still known as Blackbeard's Point. Reputable sources declare that the relic was later taken down and fashioned into a silver-mounted drinking cup. Antiquarian and publisher John F. Watson states that the skull was made into the bottom part of a very large punch bowl called the Infant, which was long used as a drinking vessel at the Raleigh Tavern in Williamsburg. It was enlarged with silver, or silver-plated, and I have seen those whose forefathers have spoken of their drinking punch from it with a silver ladle appurtenant to that bowl. Historian and author John Estine Cook, in his Virginia, states that the cup was still preserved in the state in 1903. As recently as 1989, Charles H. Weedby, a lawyer and state legislator in North Carolina, wrote a volume of reminiscences describing an event of the early 1930s when he visited a law school friend from the University of North Carolina at his home on the coast. Touring Ocracoke, they stopped at Blackbeard's Castle near Silver Lake. There is no mention if the existing B&B bearing the same name is on the same site. It was an odd but convivial evening, spent among rough seamen, speaking with the Elizabethan inflection familiar to that area. They drank from what was purported to be Blackbeard's silver-plated skull. Incised around the outer circumference were the words, Death to Spotswood. One more interesting footnote regarding buried treasure. The rumor has persisted for years that there was a secret tunnel leading from the basement in Governor Eden's mansion to the landing on Bath Creek. That would allow the pirates to deliver their payments to the governor without being seen. It is interesting to note, however, that in May of 1718, Governor Eden sold that property to John Lillington, who promptly sold it to Stephen Elsie and James Robbins, both of whom apparently had connections to Blackbeard. James Robbins' name was on the list of those captured by Lieutenant Maynard and on at least one list of those who were hung, but he apparently escaped that fate. You can just imagine the whispered conversations in the Williamsburg jail when the pirates swore they would share their riches with anyone who would arrange their freedom. Think anyone listened? Take note that James Robbins was cited for bawdy behavior in Bathtown in January of 1719, two months after he was captured and supposedly hung. William Howard, Blackbeard's quartermaster, who also somehow avoided the gallows and became a wealthy man, purchased the island of Ocracoke in 1759. He lived to the ripe age of 108. John Martin, also captured but reported as pardoned, sold 220 acres of land in Bathtown in 1720. And a final footnote. On the night before the final battle, Blackbeard's crew asked him if anyone else knew where he had buried his money. His reply was that nobody but himself and the devil knew where it was, and the longest liver should take it all. Our final tribute to Blackbeard was written by Ben Franklin when he was a young boy, 
at the news of Blackbeard's death. And this is how it reads. Come all you jolly sailors, you all so stout and brave. Come hearken and I'll tell you what happened on the wave. Oh, tis of that bloody Blackbeard I'm going now for to tell. And as how by gallant Maynard he soon was sent to hell. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Special thanks again to author Kevin Duffus for his book, The Last Days of Blackbeard the Pirate, which, if you search the booksellers, you might be able to find autographed. You don't have to be a podcast subscriber to find our episodes. Tell your pals they can find us at 1001storiespodcast.com and visit us at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes to tell us if you've ever heard of the silver-plated skull and where it can be found. Then, of course, we're at all the podcast sites like iTunes and Stitcher and podbay.fm and our host. Thanks to all of you for listening and for telling your friends about us. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.